You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Bonnie McBird is the creator of the Tron screenplay. She's also the author of The Art in the Blood, The Unquiet Spirits, and The Devil's Do, all new adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Her new novel is The Three Locks. Thank you for joining me, Bonnie. Oh, thank you for having me. Nice to be here. This is a... This is such a wonderful book. And one of the things that this book made me think was it was so involving and so engrossing. I was right there with the characters. And it made me think about just how powerful the these two characters are, the combination of these characters. This is a creation, I think, unlike any other in all of literary history. And I think, too, it takes a certain kind of talent and bravery to pick up and do what you do and do it so seamlessly and so well. So talk about the power of the Sherlock Holmes and Watson characters. Just they're amazing creations. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Rick. They, they, um, well, I think Sherlock Holmes is arguably the most famous literary character of all time. Uh, and it's said that you can go anywhere in the world, uh, show a picture of a deer stalker and a pipe or a magnifying glass, and everybody knows who you're talking about. I mean, anywhere in the world. So, And this has uh, been true for 130 years now. Uh, it's been 130 years since the first uh, Holmes story appeared. So yes, it, I, I think it's an absolutely indelible and amazing character, but specifically the relationship, the two characters together, um, I, I think it's one of the best friendships uh, in the history of literature. And it's something that we all, I think it's a very attractive, um, it's a very attractive relationship because I think we would all, like to have a friend like Watson, somebody who who admires us, but also understands us and sees the foibles, sees everything, and yet still cares and admires us. I thought, who wouldn't want a friend like Watson? Uh, but but by the same token, who who wouldn't want to be a friend like Watson? You know, to have somebody that you care about that much and that you admire, that you, you know, it's. It, it, Holmes is, um, you know, he's an aspirational character. We would all like to to be that smart. Um, but Watson, even though he sees Holmes as a fallible human being, um, he just admires him with all his heart. And I don't know, it would be lovely to have that person in your life. I kind of do, <laughs> actually. Um, but, but it, you know, it's something we emulate. I think, too, the... the power of the character of Holmes t- is that he is both brilliant and unassailable, but he's also extremely fallible. He has many flaws. So despite the fact that he has and is in many sense the prototypical superhero, he is absolutely human in every single way. And that's one of the things that makes him such a delight is to see that combination that we can all latch into both characters on some level. 
Yes, I, I totally agree. And uh, it, it's also, I think there's another facet besides the fact that he's brilliant and admirable and, and also he's fallible. And that is um, Conan Doyle created in Sherlock Holmes a bit of a mystery in the man himself. So, for example, uh, Conan Doyle did not really paint a complete picture of Holmes's childhood, his background, um, and, and there's quite a bit about him that remains un, untold. <laughs> and of course, over the years, zillions of people have written pastiche and, and you know, emulated Conan Doyle and so forth. Uh, and some people have filled in uh, his history with romance or with all kinds of things, many inventions, um, you know, psychic phenomena, all kinds of stuff. Um, but, you know, one of my goals was uh, in writing these was to, uh, while maybe delving into some of these uncharted territories, really not to undo the mystery of the man, because that's one of his appeals. You know, it's like we don't really know why he's that way. <laughs> There's some damage probably in the back there. We feel that because he's, you know, he has difficulties uh, socially. I mean, that's clear in the, in the originals. So there's some damage possibly. And he might even be what we would now call slightly Asperger's. Uh, he might even be what we would call now bipolar, manic depressive. I mean, there's been a lot of writings on both of these topics, but he's somebody who, who is not typical. He's not a typical person. He's, he's very different. And so why he's that way, you know, <laughs> we don't really know. You, you know, you're absolutely right. And one of the things I think that your books do so well is it just, uh, they don't concern us with too much of the backstory. Although this one, you choose to fill in some parts, but I think that you just take put us right into the main story and keep us there. And you do a great job of making these novels as opposed to home, the Doyles were at best uh, novellas and most of them were, you know, long, short, longish short, short stories. So talk about taking the the Holmes Watson character and the, and the crime arcs that they did and putting those in a really satisfying full-length novel. I mean, this is a 400-page novel, and it reads like about 200 pages. <laughs> it reads like a regular Sherlock Holmes story, but it feels so much fuller. So talk about that kind of contrast. Um, okay, that you know, it's interesting. That is a really interesting question, Rick, because um, I thought about that hard before I started the first novel. Um, and because you're right, Conan Doyle wrote 56 short stories and they were on the long end for short stories. A lot of them were on 8,000 words, uh, some a little shorter. And But then he wrote four novellas, which are around 40,000. But a novel is 80 to 120. I mean, it's you know, thousand words I'm talking about. And, and so that requires a different kind of story structure. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like the difference between a half hour TV show and then an hour TV show and then a full length movie. And um, since I worked in story development at the studios for four years and, and I wrote screenplays for a number of years, uh, I'm, I think in, I, I, I think I'm, it's normal for me to think in long form. And I, and the ideas I had for the home stories were wanted long form. But once you are working in long form, uh, there's advantages and disadvantages. And uh, mm. one, of the, one of the reasons I think short form works so well for Watson is that you retain first person narration. 
So Watson, almost entirely throughout the canon, with a few exceptions, it's Watson is speaking, Watson is telling you the story. And so because of that, he has to be present in all the scenes, you know, that, that's right. You know, so storytelling wise, that's, that's tough. And then the other thing is that, um, it, for a longer form, uh, you need kind of more ups and downs. You need, you need, and you need an, a kind of a longer story arc. So this, um, I, I, I've described this a couple times as a, as like a, a bridge. So like a short story is like a Japanese bridge over a, uh, you know, over a little stream. So it's, it's just, you know, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, you know, there's a case and a, a complications and then the solution. But once you extend that to, you know, you need to do a novel length, t several things happen. Once is, one is you need more, like, pylons in, 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 a, in a bridge over a, a big river, for example. And, mm -hmm. and those pylons, storytelling-wise, are, are moments of great excitement, action, or big emotional moments. And so the structure of the story has to change a bit. The other thing that happens is that Holmes is the smartest guy in the world, right? So right. can't take forever to figure stuff out. Therefore, you have to make a, a, a case or confluence of cases that really demand that kind of brain power and will extend over that. So, so it, my my solution to that was to create more than one case and to convolve them. And so I've done that in all four books. Some of the convolvement is, is closer than others, um, uh, but you know it's. But that was one of the challenges also. And once you work in long form, um, even when you're writing genre fiction, which, you know, like mystery, thriller, horror, et cetera, once you're long form, uh, you have more time and it's, and it's a requirement really to put in more character development. And so then I'm constrained because again, it's through Watson's point of view, but also I don't want to ruin the mystery of Holmes. There has to retain some mystery to this figure. Um, and, but I want to develop the relationship, but staying, you know, not contradicting canon in any way. But one of the delights is the, is the relationship between the two of them and, you know, the kind of banter between them and, the, and they both sort of poke at each other and say, but they will, they will die for each other too. So, uh, so that is a really fun thing to explore. Um, so, so the long form does, you know, pull you in, in certain ways. So it's been an interesting challenge to extend to long form yet try to keep the feel. Um, because because uh, Conan Doyle chose Watson as his narrator, Watson is a man of action. He, he's not a man uh, of, you know, poetic uh, recounting. He doesn't spend, you know, paragraphs on the weather and the stuff. So uh, because he's a man of action, the, the prose is very muscular. It's very um, uh, active. And so that, that's, uh, that's, I think, adds to the pace. You know, one thing that what you just said made me think about two things. One is that... Uh, an 8,000-word short story will translate pretty well and give you a pretty rich hour-and-a-half, two-hour movie. And But you talked about how, you know, but that when you view that and watch it, it feels like pretty much like a novel. So I'm thinking that your experience of writing original movies that have the feel of the novel but really deliver in turn, you know, 
what you might find in an 8,000-word tight, short story would be a real help to you in turning what were the short stories of, of Sherlock Holmes into the, the long-form novels that we read that feel like short stories. In a sense, they have all their tense and you read them really fast and they're just really good. But there's a, they're a lot richer. Short. So uh, talk about um, how your screenwriting uh, work has influenced your work as a writer of novels. Um, well, I think structurally uh, is one of the yeah. things. Screenplay, uh, screenplay writing is very concise. It's like um, it's almost like haiku. You have to put uh, a lot of meaning, you know, into into the page. So you you can't you can only write in screenwriting what you can see and what you can hear. So you know, I taught screenwriting for eleven years at, at UCLA. Um, writers program you see like extension writers program and um so you know one of the first things you you, you talk to as, as to a new a new screenwriter is that you know you can't it's you don't put the thoughts in you have to put what you can see and what you can hear now you have a little oh. more leeway when you're writing fiction because watson has a watson has thoughts <laughs> you know he has opinions and those are quite funny some of the time um and they're perceptive he's no dummy by the way um but but uh, but he isn't holmes and so you see everything through his his mind that's a freeing thing when you're comparing it to screenwriting but i think one of the lessons from screenwriting that's helpful in writing holmes is uh is pace and structure. Uh, there has to be a very strong underlying structure, and that's what gives you um, the turn the page quality. That I've got to get on to the next thing. It's it's kind of like um, when you write a screenplay scene. I, I te teach my students that each scene has to have like an octopus arm reaching to other scenes. In other words, uh -huh. you want to know what's next. What's next? But you reveal something in each scene that makes you want to know the next thing so that each scene has an out it's called scene out in the in screenwriting and each chapter does in this which is uh-oh or like oh you know <laughs> it's, it's a it's something that makes you perk up and go like oh the next thing what you know uh and so uh, it's a quality we call narrative drive in screenwriting but it's equally true in um in book writing, novel writing. And um, so Conan Doyle sometimes was called cinematic in his writing, which is interesting because oh. the early the early works, of course, predated cinema. So they weren't, you know, it, later on they overlapped and he actually even saw some movies of his of his uh, creation. And Eileen Norwood played Sherlock Holmes in some very early movies that, that he saw. But, wow, but, I didn't know yeah. this. I know, but that, that was at the end of the writing. But the beginning, of course, was in the 1880s, and there was, was no cinema. But it's called cinematic because, first of all, it's very visual. Second of all, it moves. It moves quicker than um, others of his time. And he also conveys a lot of information and used more dialogue than other writers of his era. So, so in, in those respects, his style is, is conducive. Um, you said earlier uh, that, you know, you thought the short stories would make a novel. I, I'm not sure about that, because I think that, like, for example, in the Granada series, the Jeremy Brett series. Oh, yeah. They, 
you know, they did they did quite a few of the original short stories and they made them as, you know, out TV hours. Um, and they worked quite well. In fact, some of them even had to be kind of stretched and added to to fill the hour. Um, but the novellas, of course, uh, were longer, you know. Um, so the thing about it is, um, I think for you know movie uh, to, to create a movie of Sherlock Holmes, you, you need a bit more story and character development than you have in the um, in the short stories of Conan Doyle. But you know, um, the other thing that what you were saying made me think about was you were talking about always keeping within canon when you're writing these, and this made me think that one of the problems that any writer faces is you know the blank page you can do anything i can do and i write anything what am i what am i going to write well what about this what about you, you you can get trapped by having too much and and stop but having you know canon there for you is it's a big fence but it's a fence and, and it really in that sense it's really uh you know something that you can grab at it's like having a toolkit or in at your disposal. So talk about a understanding what canon was because it is just what Doyle wrote, not what ten thousand other people thought or thought about Doyle. So talk about keeping track of canon when you're writing these, and how that does that help you? Yes, actually, it does. In uh, in art, it's called freeing constraints. Exactly. Um, do you remember? Yeah, yeah, it's, it, and it does actually help. Um, so yeah, I try to keep consistent with canon uh, and not do something that it, anything contradicts it. But but remember the movie? I think it was Apollo thirteen when they had a breakdown and they said, "Okay, we've got to fix this." And here's what they have on board, and they threw it all on a table. This is the stuff they can touch, and this is all they have access to. How do we fix this thing? That, do you remember this? Yeah, that went wrong. And the, all the scientists are like looking at the table going, well, you know, with the pieces that they had and no more. So it's kind of like that. That's uh, my husband's favorite scene in any movie, I think. He's a scientist. Anyway, so so it's like, what do you do with what you've got? And I do I do not read other people's pastiches. There's some great ones out there. Uh, and then there's some very inventive ones. People, you know, the monsters and you know, psychic phenomena and, you know, in present day and all, I mean, all kinds of stuff has been done. But what I chose to do, and not not judging these other choices, but it's just what I chose to do was to keep consistent with canon. And, and then those freeing constraints are, you know, they're very demanding, but it's helpful, actually. Um, so, and I also love the Victorian era. I, I just am so attracted to that time and place. I mean, you can kind of tell this, my, I don't know if you can see this, but this is, this is our flat is decorated and, and you know, with the Victorian look, and, and in fact, this flat is was built in 1890. Wow! So, yeah, it does look very. Uh, you could be sitting in uh, Sherlock Holmes time, but for maybe some of the the little tiny lights. But even those, I might yeah. be that. Yeah. Christmas lights. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah, definitely. So the, the era itself is a very rich. It provides a very rich tapestry that I can draw on and still be consistent with canon. 
So right then, amazing technology was coming to the fore um, and amazing new developments. And social the social fabric was changing. I mean, there's just a lot of really uh, juicy uh, stuff that you can, you, you can pull into these stories and be entirely consistent with the originals. So I happen to love the uh, the era, and I usually start um, I, I start my novels by deciding the date, and then I just start immersing in the news and the and the history, and then I start I read uh, medical literature because Watson's a doctor, and I just like that stuff. So I always put Victorian medicine in there, and uh, you know I just love the the world. The world is very um, rich. You know, one of the things you do really well in these novels is to create the world from the get-go. Let's talk a little bit about The Three Locks because it's it's a super, super fun novel to read. I just, I loved it. It was like a great vacation. And that, to me, in a sense, the best reading experience is you can look back on the, the memories you have of reading the book are can be equivalent to like uh, the memories you might have of actually going somewhere. You know, they're memories, and you're manufacturing that world the same as you were experiencing. Maybe not quite the same, but pretty darn close. That if the book's well done. So talk about beginning this book and, and the title, the three locks. That's a really interesting title. It immediately grabs you, and you immediately immerse us in some locks. And just the idea of Sherlock Holmes and Locks, A, it's part of his name, B, it just really plays to that nature of things held, guarded, kept secret, made open, and opened by people who don't have the key. Right, exactly. You know, unlocking something is sort of the nature of a mystery. Uh, but also it can guard, like you said, it can guard things, but it can also imprison things. Mm. Uh, you know, so there's many uses of a lock. And uh, and so I, I, I pitched that title. I wasn't sure yet what the locks were, but I just had all this swimming around and I knew it was a fertile ground. So the, uh, the first thing I do when I, when I start to write a book, uh, one of these uh, Holmes mysteries is to decide, first of all, when it is. Uh, and I was requested by the publisher to make this one be before, uh, chronologically before the other three that I'd written. Frankly, it doesn't really matter because they each work as standalones. But I, so I set it in 1887. And then I begin reading, you know, stuff and I decide where to set it. And immediately I came upon the Jesus lock. And just the name of that is like, what is that? So, it, it, that's, it's such an evocative name. Yeah, exactly. I, that just... What? Yeah. What is the Jesus lock? So I investigated. And of course, it's a lock on the river cam and a, a lock being the, you know, the kind of thing that changes the, the level of the river so boats can, can go through. Um, and, and so uh, but I went to Cambridge and I also got very interested in another aspect of Cambridge, which was the Cavendish Labs. Cavendish Laboratories, where edge physics was happening. And of course, Holmes being a scientist, I, I thought of him as the kind of, uh, he's an amateur scientist. And they, they, there were a lot of amateur uh, scientists in the in the 19th century. That was a very, uh, that was a predominant thing. So, so because he, 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 I think of him as following science uh, the way other men follow cricket or, or football. You know? <laughs> exactly. He's, 
a fan, and he does some of it. So, so um, he would have been up, up to date on what was going on in the Cavendish laboratories, and it was cutting edge physics right then. So really exciting stuff. So uh, I started to get into that, and then I thought the Jesus Lock and this Ca this Cavendish Laboratory. So Cambridge became uh, a major focus for for one of the three stories. And what a great uh, environment, you know. It's, it, it's very rich, also. So you have the uh, the town and gown. Uh, uh, so the, there was there's been a tradition of rivalry and and dis, you know discomfort between those two big factions of the city, uh, and so that that was that started to get very interesting. <laughs> so these things just kind of balloon out. I, I start the research with, you know, kind of an open mind and just a few key things, and then they. You know, as I do the research, I get very excited about it's like you find it's like mining for gold, you know, and <laughs> as I start doing the reading, I go, oh, that's something good I can use. You know? Well, you know, you mentioned Cambridge. I think of it, you know, it's University City is very um, stately, uh, stolid, you know, in many ways. Uh, the epitome uh, uh, of the stiff British upper lip. It, it, you know, it should be there. But in the time when Holmes was there, it's kind of like a. There's a lot of sleaze going on. <laughs> a lot more than I think is going on in the present day. I haven't been there in the present day, so I don't know. But so talk about uh, one of the things you have is a, a prison where where women who are loose in the night when they shouldn't be are swept away. So talk about that. That's a really fascinating thing, upsetting in many ways, but uh, yeah. not, uh, but utterly, it just seems so in keeping with the times. Yeah. It, uh, that thing really existed. It's called the spinning house. And um, it was very active right at the time of this story. It's actually kind of a sad story. Um, the, that was a, another thing, uh, sort of a dissatisfaction between town and gown. Uh, the, there was a, an unofficial police force run by the university, by proctors. And um, th they, one of the things they did, they were trying to protect uh, the students, who were, of course, all men, uh, from loose women who, you know, might be enticing them and, and giving them venereal disease and, you know, taking their money and blah, blah. So, uh, so they, they decided that they would round up, uh, young, you know, young women uh, it, who were out after curfew or who were seen sorting, which just means talking, to uh, uh, students, any of the young male students, thinking that they were going to entice them into, you know, something unsavory. So, so they would, they, they arrested these girls, and many of them were, yeah, sure, there were probably a few prostitutes among them, but they also arrested shop girls and servants and, you know, young women that had nothing to do with that, but just happened to be out at the wrong time in the wrong place. And they threw them into this place called the Spinning House, which was a jail, but it was an unofficial jail. And they had no legal recourse. And they and sometimes their parents and, and friends didn't even know where they were, what, what happened to them. And they could be kept there for weeks. Uh, eventually, uh, a little bit later in real life, a young woman that was arrested that way sued them. <laughs> and it became a huge uh, you know, thing. And she lost her suit because they, uh, you know, impugned her reputation royally. Uh, but 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 that brought attention, public attention to it, and eventually it was abolished. But at the time of the story, it was in full flower, and young girls were just arrested and thrown in there and treated 
horribly. Um, you know, so <laughs> so that that was a that was an interesting uh, note. And so I did endanger one of the young uh, female characters in the book. The um, you know, the, one of the main characters is the daughter of a famous Don, and that wouldn't have happened to her because she had status. Status, but the one young. Uh, servant of hers gets thrown in there accidentally. Uh, so yeah, I mean, this thing really existed <laughs> and, and, and it's worth a mention. Now, I will confess that uh, one John Wyndham was one of my favorite science fiction writers uh, of all time. And, and uh, so when I saw the name Wyndham, I, my, I, my, I perked up and good, but oh my God. <laughs> This whole family, <laughs> you, you do a good job uh, of making a family that is quite unpleasant. <laughs> Top to bottom, really. Uh, well, um, the uh, the patriarch of that family, this is a fictional family, it was a, is a very famous Don. And some of his characteristics were drawn from some real people. He isn't based on a single real person. Mm -hmm. um, but there is, there was one, uh, one real uh, Cambridge uh, professor who did have this habit of exploding at his students and turning bright red and going nuts in class, and so <laughs> gave gave him that that quality. Um, and then uh, I really wanted to create a, an environment, a family where a young woman would feel incredibly trapped, and and it motivates the younger daughter of this family to to basically create a secret life of her own uh, and she has three three young men in love with her and how she handles them is perhaps not ideal <laughs> but uh but yes uh, but but it, i i see her as a as a person trapped in her time and so i don't think of her as an entirely unsympathetic character she behaves badly some mm -hmm. of the time but uh you also i, I hope understand why she does you have um, a good job but you do a great job of nuancing them and moreover Every single one is really pretty much unforgettable with him. Once you kind of spend a little time with them, you know them and you know who they are. And, you, you know, they're all, they're they are somewhat of a mixed bag. Some are more mixed than others, shall we say. But I think that as in terms of creating characters that will work, take you through a whole novel, they're just the perfect example of what you want. Somebody that you can... First time you read about them, every time you come up, you look forward to, to reading about them because you know them, even if they're somewhat unpleasant. <laughs> well, I, I thank you. That I, That is a huge compliment, actually, and I appreciate that because uh, Conan Doyle was known for creating really interesting characters. And so it, in my effort to, to emulate, which I have to say, I believe is hubris because I think he's Conan Doyle's a genius writer and, and I can't really be like him. Uh, but in every way that I try to be like him, it elevates the writing. And um, some people say to me, you know, why do you, you know, why do you want to imitate somebody else? And it's like, well, if you've ever studied visual arts, you know, at an advanced level, you'll know that 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 a lot of the training is is in copying or emulating uh, incredibly gifted uh, artists of various styles. And so I feel like. You know, his character writing is so good, you know, that I've learned from it. I mean, I, I, I just and I keep, you know, reviewing it, et cetera. I mean, I, so so I mean, I think um, 
I appreciate that you like these characters. I, I, I don't feel like I'm Conan Doyle-esque about them because no. he's too good, but I, I'm trying to be. <laughs> and, and that helps. And so, um, yeah. Well, one of the things we were saying, I think this is really true of all art, um, that it's very, very helpful for any artist to Im try to imitate another, you know, if you're a, a songwriter to say, I'm going to try to rip off Bob Dylan. Nobody can rip off Bob Dylan. But what happens when you, that gives you a direction to go that immediately cuts away a big swath of what you can do to, to what you can't do because you're trying to imitate Bob Dylan. But what you, because it's you doing it, what you come up with is going to be a have a point and b be original and, and very unlike bob dylan you might not what you come up with might be utterly utterly unlike might be something more like craft work or something but the the strength of pursuing that goal that dot out there really gives you a a, a way to I guess an authority to be yourself, and, and that, that's what I think really comes through. Because these don't feel like they're written like by Conan Doyle; they feel like just you know another great modern novel set in Victorian times. <laughs> so, that, uh, could you talk about just um, the idea of because mystery itself is a genre that is you know it's in a sense they're all Sherlock Holmes or, or maybe. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe via Conan Doyle. <laughs> right, and Agatha Christie, and you know, yeah. there's a whole line of them as they, yeah, that developed through the through the years. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love your phrase, you know, that dot out there, and, and because that made me think, Rick, of, of um, you know, of a spacecraft, you know, aiming for a distant planet. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what it is. And it is kind of, and you're right, you, you, emulating Bob Dylan or emulating Conan Doyle, you, you aren't going to recreate them. You're not doing it slavishly, but, you know, you're trying to understand what makes these genius creations work. What what about them uh, makes them timeless and, you know, last for years and, you know, unassailably genius. And so when you try to distill those qualities, it can't help but... Um, but help you as a, as a writer or a songwriter uh, or whatever. So, yeah, I, I, and I'm very inspired and challenged <laughs> at all times, uh, you know, by this. You know, um, I, I there are just a, a bounty of wonderful characters here. I, I like like them all, you know, even though they fall on, si on various sides of people I mean, you might want to hang <laughs> <laughs> with so uh, you you do a good job with the Victorian rich and we and we have a a, a very uh, young rich man who who's in love with a very young rich woman so so talk about creating you know your version of Lord Fauntleroy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, um, so at, at the you know. England has a very striated uh, class system, more so than we do in America. But of course, we, we do have one in America. It's just not quite so upfront. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but back then, it was very, even more differentiated than now. And at Cambridge, I mean, at Oxford and Cambridge, a lot of very wealthy uh, boys, who's only men at that time, attended. 
and most of them were very well connected. And of course, Oxford and Cambridge connected them even further. So I decided to create a very, very privileged young man as one of the suitors of um, Odelia, Dilly Wyndham. And, uh, and so I had a lot of fun kind of... Um, basing him on you know characters I'd seen in red and also a little bit honestly uh, I went to Stanford and um, there were massively rich kids there there were kids who were you know driving Porsches in their freshman year that they just somebody gave them you know <laughs> kind of this kind of thing and and then there were kids on scholarship entirely on scholarship like me uh, who like this was just another planet basically and so so you know and and so he would be the the 19th century Cambridge equivalent of what we had at Stanford, we called frat boys. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. And, and, and no thought of any recourse because it wouldn't touch them. You know, so. uh, that's one of the things, too, that's really nice about these books is that we can immediately slot the and too about Victorian times because we do right now have all those class striations and they're and they're getting more vivid by the day. It seems much to our regret. Yes. And uh, you know we're in the midst of an explosion of new technologies, which was what was happening at the, the time and part of the real appeal, I think, of the Sherlock Holmes books. Um. So I I think that. Uh, Again, one of the things you do well is to use the Victorian times as, you know, the funhouse mirror of the present day. <laughs> and we just have to hope we don't get to, to you know, the, the, the Dickensian world uh, uh, of poor houses, although we seem to be heading in that direction as well. Yeah, I like I like to I like to, yes, it is definitely a funhouse mirror of today. It definitely is. Rick and I, I so appreciate this because you are the best interviewer I've ever had. I gotta tell you this. <laughs> anyway, yes, it is a funhouse mirror of today and uh, because there's so many parallels, like like you said, the incredible change in technology, the very rapid change and how that affected social life and the massive growth of London during the times and and um, and and uh, and the the conflict between you know church and state between wealthy and and poor etc. Um, I was really stunned to learn, for example, uh, and this was in my last book, in the Devil's Do. Uh, I put some of this in that uh, you know we have a lot of homeless here in London, as we do everywhere now, uh, and and so um you know like i i'm actually my flat is within sight of the baker street tube entrance and uh they are frequently like sitting right there at the entrance so um what i didn't know is that like the homeless population at that time was like five times what it is now here in london wow. so and of course you know they, there were few, you know, fewer things to help them in, in some ways. But they had their one of the recourse uh, they had was to go to the workhouse, which was pretty close to being in jail. It's pretty awful. Uh, and actually, one of the workhouses, the biggest workhouse in London, was literally right behind the building I'm sitting in. Uh, it was called the Marlebone Workhouse. So I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. I've where have I read that? Heard that yeah. name somewhere? Marlebone yeah. Workhouse. Wow. Yeah huge it was it was almost like a small city really and, and so um yeah so 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 the the social constraints a lot of stuff um was very 
exciting and interesting to a fiction writer because it's uh, it just is filled with conflict, and of course, conflict is the the basis for good fiction. And um, and Holmes is an interesting person because he kind of floats above and separate from that. He, you get the impression, the only thing uh, Conan Doyle provides us with is that he, his family were country squires, which means they were landowners. It doesn't really say how wealthy they were, but a certain degree of comfort, obviously, uh, to be uh, to be landowner in the countryside. And it's known that he, you know, he, he knows a lot of kind of things that upper class young men learn archery and boxing and so forth. They, they take training in all these various sports and, and he has the patina of a gentleman. He is a gentleman. Um, uh, and you get the impression that he went to one of the major universities, either Cambridge or Oxford, which is debated now, even still. <laughs> um, and, and so in my, in unquiet spirits, I had him attend, uh, what would be high school for us or a preparatory school for one of the big universities, uh, Fetus in Edinburgh, but only for a year. And then he went on to Oxbridge, which is, uh, which is, um, you know, fake. You know, it's one of the other of these, and it doesn't say which. But uh, and Conan Doyle used that in one of his stories, uh, used that fake. But he also used, I think, Cambridge and Oxford as themselves in, in other stories. But in any case, we don't know where Holmes went. But we do know he's a gentleman. He's certainly educated, but kind of an autodidact because his education is really strong in some areas and not in others. Um, but, you know, there's a whole tradition of amateur scientists back then, people that had collections of things and who, you know, had little laboratories. And, and, a and cabinet a of curiosities. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and and uh, and and he even gets teased actually in this book by uh, somebody, a young physicist who's studying in the Cambridge in the Cavendish labs, uh, who teases him about, yeah, you probably have a Bunsen burner in your sitting room. You know, like, <laughs> you amateur. Well, he does. In fact, he yeah, actually he has he has the same more complex device. And this, I'll just mention as an aside, uh, I love Vitaly. He, that guy is a great character. I, I would like to see him again. Wait, which one? Which one? Vitaly, the young oh, student. Yeah, yeah. Vitaly, yeah, yeah. The scientist. Yeah, maybe I'll bring him back. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, every year at the BSI, the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the big American uh, Sherlockian society, they have a big uh, event, a series of events over a weekend in um January and they, they usually have an auction that is for charity and uh, I I've been putting up like a, a naming uh, you know of a character in my books and somebody so uh, Leo Vitali is is a one name is the name of a, a small baby actually that <laughs> 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 is uh, you know a relative of a, of a Sherlockian but yeah I like him too he's 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 a he's an in, interesting guy he's one of Dilly suitors, but uh. <laughs> you know, one of the things too I thought was so perfect was to see uh, Holmes become involved in stage magic. I mean, it just seems like absolutely perfect fit for him, and because it involves you know both subterfuge, which Holmes is excellent at, and disguise, which Holmes is excellent at. And science and building stuff. So, uh, yeah. talk about the the creation of some of those tricks that you describe. You must have done some um, 
uh, investigation into stage magic of the times. Was there a woman who ever built those kind of devices? That was an interesting twist in, in the story. Um, not that I'm aware of. So Ilaria Borelli was not based on a real woman, but mm-hmm. um, but I did do, as you asked, an investigation into to the stuff of the time. And in fact, I had as my consultant a wonderful Sherlockian named Dan Stashauer, who uh, he wrote a wonderful pastiche called The, the uh, Ectoplasmic Man. But also he, um, he, is a, he is a magician as well as a deep Sherlockian. So he, he uh, and he's very familiar with Victorian magic. So he he was my consultant on this, and um, I based the uh, the stage magician um, Dario Borelli on kind of on a Houdini-like character. And so one of the tricks he did, the sort of hanging upside down in a tank of water, is directly off of a Houdini trick that came historically. It actually came later uh, in time, but but it was certainly possible then. But then I had to have a, a, a dire <laughs> a dire event happen on stage, and I don't want to give too much away. But <clears throat> I had in my head um, how I wanted a person to die and how I wanted Holmes to figure it out, and my first ideas wouldn't work. So I just spent quite a long time reading a science that I needed and then consulting with Dan and and finally created this sequence where uh, there's a dead person and it's not what you think <laughs> and 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 I had to find out for example um, I used something called that you know the flash powder that was uh, invented that you know they would hold up those things to take your photograph <laughs> you know right. and do that that's a particular uh, combination of chemicals and I ended up using that but I had to make sure that it existed then and, and it had just come come into use at that time so sometimes you know you, my research sometimes my research is I find something and go oh I got to use that and other times I want something to happen and I don't know how to make it happen and I look for the thing that will make it happen so, so it works backwards and forwards sometimes so it was a lot of fun <laughs> uh, i guess then research and act offers you some of the same uh benefits as does a stain within canon which is to both inspire new thought but also keep things in line so that you know you're not putting a spaceship in there yet you're not right. going all jewels there and on us yeah <laughs> Yeah, I do love Jules Verne, but that's not what these are. So, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely want to do that. And also what people know. I mean, Holmes, uh, you know, the average person doesn't know all this stuff. Holmes knows, you know, some of this stuff. He, he looks up what he needs to know. You, you said, you know, you were talking about a minute ago about Holmes having, you know, a lot of the qualities of a stage musician, magician. But he also he also has a certain showmanship to him. Right. And, you know, he loves to he loves the ta-da moment. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody else uh, refers to him in the in the the novel as an actor, this actor, and trying to dismiss him. But I thought, wow, that's true. Holmes really is an actor. That's a, such an interesting observation because I haven't read it neither in any of the other Holmes materials. But uh, Holmes is, in a sense, the ultimate actor in that. It, you know, comes with all his disguises, but it's also too in the way he investigates and reveals things to the people around him and holds them back. He's really yeah. smart at that. Hey. Yes, he's got a, he has a certain theatricality to him, him, and he likes he likes the moment of reveal. But yeah, it, actually, there is a great quote in the original canon. Uh, like some, I think it's something like um, the the stage lost a great actor when Holmes decided to go into 
you know, detective work. That's not exactly the quote, but it's close to that. And yeah, I mean, he, he does have a, he, he does like an audience. I think that's partly why, uh, you know, what that's partly Watson's function, who, mm-hmm. which he quite understands, of course. Um, and usually we'll give it to him, but not always. <laughs> uh, and so I think, yeah, that's kind of the fun of it too, is that Holmes has a, he has an ego. He has an ego and he's a little, he's, I think at one point Watson calls him in the originals, uh, you know, he had, a, he has a, He's vain. He's as vain as a woman, or something. Watson says about certain things, uh, and he does kind of show off. <laughs> now, um, you're you uh, clearly have another book in, planned. How far are you along on it? And could you talk about you know this kind of? Uh, you've got a series now, and one of the things I do like about them is that they're standalone, but. Do you have a, a bigger arc in mind as you uh, play these out? Or, are you, I mean, because the standalone aspect of them is very appealing because you can just pick them up. And, and, you know, if your memory is shattered by what too many Netflix binges or spending too much time with your synthesizer manual. <laughs> uh, you, by chance? That might be me, yeah. Yeah, there, you can probably see some of the, the there's a, that guy thing right there is called the the pipe, and it's uh, for singing into. But it does all sorts of bizarre things to whatever you put into it, whether you can put a guitar or a voice. But yeah, so talk about making standalone uh, <laughs> for for those of the uh, of of the defeated memory. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's that's all of us, especially during pandemic. I, I don't know about you, but function has all changed while we're locked up. Um, yeah, I I, um, I do like to make them stand alone for that reason, and that's you know that was the original concept of the stories, the short stories that that Conan Doyle did, and he kind of almost invented the you know episodic form, which later became you know like in television. It's like you don't ha- it, nowadays you have limited series where there's an arc throughout the whole thing. No, I don't really have a planned arc through the whole thing because as I said, I'm inserting mine in, in places in canon that I don't want to contradict. Um, I'm interested in writing them in their thirties cause I just like the vibrancy of them at that age. I ha- have them in my head at that age. And also, you know, um, I like the, the era, the, the, you know, the 18, 1880s and so forth. So that's kind of my goal. But I do have, uh, I do plan to bring a couple of characters back. Uh, I did bring back uh, Vidoc, who is a, Vidoc, by the way, <clears throat> a lot of people will recognize that name because there was a real uh, person, uh, Eugène Vidoc, who was much earlier in the 19th century and was a famous uh, French uh, detective, but also a criminal <laughs> uh, right. in real life. Um, but the Vidoc in my stories is a, is a French detective who has assumed that name because it has a certain cachet, but it's not his real name. <laughs> but he's, he's been in a couple of them, and I, I enjoy having him there. So I will be bringing him back. Actually, he's been in three of them so far. But because this was this the one um, that Three Locks was set before, and Watson says he's met He's just meeting Vidoc for the first time in the next one. Yeah, I can't, I couldn't have Vidoc in this one, but I will be bringing Vidoc back. Another character I want to bring back is uh, a lot of readers have been demanding this character come back is Heffy, uh, who is Hefzibah O'Malley. She's a street character in um, 
in The Devil's Jew. She's a street girl, and she's the daughter of a uh, a Jewish uh, school teacher mom and an, an Irish boxer dad, and, who are both uh, dead. And so she's an orphan and making her way in the streets. She's very smart, and she's a very fun character. And I definitely want to bring Heffy back. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Now, um, I I have to ask. You're well known and well connected in the in the movie business. Uh, it seems to me like these would be natural, as you know, a f- each one is going to be a good five episodes on Netflix, maybe six. You know, flesh them out, have the, give the actors some scenery to chew, and just let them go. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, do you need some help pitching that? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting by the phone, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, I would love to see them. They are, I think, eminently suitable for, for dramatization. And um, I see them as a as an, uh, limited series or maybe even a non-unlimited series, but definitely a series. And I think it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, it's a crowded market. A lot of people mm. are trying Sherlock. And, um, you know, recently the regulars came out. I'm, I kind of keep up on all of them. And um, I haven't seen a good a traditional Sherlock, though, in a long time. Um, and I would love to see I would love to see these made into uh, a series. I think it, it could be a lot of fun. It's hard to get past uh, Jeremy Brett and, and Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> Between the two of them, that's they're pretty tough. Uh, yeah, so. they, they they they're superb i love them both i also like robert downey jr because i think he's one of the best actors working today oh yeah and i loved him as Sherlock. uh you know he was more controversial because some people say well he doesn't look right for sure it's like ah, he's so good <laughs> he just embodied the character and jude law was uh, an excellent foil um so yeah i mean there's been a lot of good good sherlock's um at least the Downey stuff was set in the in the time, and there was a lot of wonderful Victorian stuff in those movies. Uh, I'm waiting for the next one. I was like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it is. But it has been a crowded market, and so um, you know, I don't know. I, I would love to see it happen. I think there's really room for a traditional Holmes to come back, especially a handsome thirty-something one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we'll look forward to. The new novel by Bonnie, Bonnie McBird. Her latest novel is The Three Locks. Thank you for joining me, Bonnie. This was just a blast. For me, too. <laughs> Thanks, right. Rick. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.